0: Our great God and Father, we ask that as we open up your word now, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would speak. And would your voice be louder and clearer than all of the other voices in our culture? And would your voice break into our hearts and lives? And would you change us, O God? And would you mold us and shape us to be faithful, gracious, loving, truth-filled people in this world? And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So today I was working on my sermon and uh, I went home for lunch. And after lunch, I was feeling a little bit tired. So I told one of my daughters that I was going to take a nap. And she said, um, "She said, well, did you finish your sermon yet? I said, well, I'm just about done. There's just a couple things. And she said, so you're going to put sleep ahead of God, huh? <laughs> I just thought that's not fair, is it? That was not fair. So, hey, if you were here last week, uh, we began a conversation together talking about one of the great threats to the life, to the vitality, and to the mission of the church. And I think we could say maybe one of the unique threats to the life, the vitality, and the mission of the church right now in this cultural moment, and that is disunity, and it is division. You know, it's almost cliche right now that uh, we say that we live in this incredibly polarized, divided United States, and we are not so united anymore. And increasingly, it seems like we Americans find it easier to dismiss and write off and cancel, or to label and accuse people than we do of actually engaging in a gracious conversation where we seek to understand before we seek to be understood. And it seems like more and more we live in this very divisive, this very vitriolic, uh, this very toxic culture. And I think increasingly, the same divisions that are reflected in our culture are being increasingly reflected in our churches. And I shared with you last week that over the last few weeks, I've had opportunity to engage in personal conversation or listen to interviews and podcasts with pastors from all over the country, uh, ranging from New York to New Mexico, uh, from Arkansas to Oregon, uh, from California to Colorado. And it seems like all of them are saying the same thing, that in their churches right now, they are experience the same kind of polarization, uh, the same kind of divides that you see happening in our culture over COVID-19 and over race issues. It's surfacing in the church and it's dividing in the church. And so I think this is a very real, it's a very live issue, I think for our churches. And I think for us as a community Christ church, it's a live issue among us. And it's also a very serious issue. And it's serious because Jesus himself said that all people will know that we are his disciples by what? It's not by the bumper stickers on our car. It's not by the political decisions that we make. Instead, it is by the love that we demonstrate to one another. And Jesus prayed on the night before he was crucified. He prayed for us all. And he put it like this. He said, Father, I pray not only for uh, the 12, those that, that you've given me here, but I pray for all of those who will believe. And what did Jesus pray? He prayed that we would be one, even as the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are one. He prayed that we would be one so that the whole world would know that he was sent by the father. In other words, the witness of the church, the mission of the church depends upon our ability to get along together. Uh, The credibility of the witness of the church depends upon the love that the church shows to one another. And so what I want to do this evening is I want us to once again turn our attention to this topic of unity. But tonight, I want to draw your attention to something that is taught in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. So we began a series a few weeks back looking together at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a first century church in the city of Colossae. And it's interesting, I spent some time this week just kind of like pouring over this letter, and I've got it all divided out and and, uh, highlighted and noted up and all this stuff. And, uh, And I was noticing one of the sub themes of this letter actually becomes, I think, one of the key disciplines, one of the key spiritual practices and habits that is necessary to maintain unity and harmony and peace in our church, in our homes. Uh, in among our relationships, among colleagues at work. He actually reveals to us uh, in this sub-theme, one of the, the key practices that is so critical to the unity of the church, and it is the spiritual habit, it is the spiritual practice of giving thanks, of showing gratitude. And God, this, this, this call, this model of giving thanks, this spiritual practice of gratitude, it is all through this letter. In the very beginning, Paul begins by saying, we have not ceased to give thanks for you all. And at the end of this letter, uh, toward the end, he says, I want you all to continue steadfastly in prayer with thanksgiving. And then when Paul prays for the church, he prays, uh, among other things, that we would be a people that is giving thanks always for what God has done on our behalf. And later, when he talks about some of the marks of, of a maturing Christian life, uh, one of the core marks is gratitude. In other words, uh, if you're going to be a growing, faithful follower of Jesus, you're going to be marked preeminently by gratitude. But what I want you to see tonight, what I noticed uh, this week as I was studying through it is that the connection that the apostle Paul makes here between gratitude and unity in the church. And listen to how he puts it in Colossians chapter three, verse 14. He says this, he says, and above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And uh, in just a minute, he's going to talk about peace and he's going to talk about unity. And here he talks about harmony and look at what he says. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I want you to notice here when he says rule in your hearts, he's not here talking about you as an individual that you would experience peace in your own personal heart, though that's certainly true. That's something that God wants us to experience. But I want you to see it's in plural. In other words, he's saying, I want you to have peace among you. The peace that God has brought through Jesus Christ should rule among you as a community to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says this, and be thankful. It's interesting, right after this call to let the peace of Christ rule among us and to be unified in one body, the immediate exhortation that he, he, he follows upon with is to be thankful And then he says, and let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he says in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So did you hear the threefold repetition of this command to give thanks? And do you see here the connection that he's trying to make between the unity of the church and the deep spiritual practice and habit of giving thanks? In other words, Christ Church, if we are to be a unified community, then we have got to be a grateful community. But grateful for what? What is it? What is the kind of unity or what is the kind of gratitude? What is the kind of thankfulness that actually binds a church together in unity? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. What is that kind of gratitude that binds the church together in unity? Now there's different answers we could give to this question. Uh, we, we could say that it is thanksgiving for the little things. And Paul certainly alludes to this because in verse 17, he says, therefore, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? He's saying, look, in everything you're doing, do it with a spirit, he says, of gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, give thanks to God for it. You know, theologians have have said that creation, this this world that we inhabit is gratuitous. In other words, uh, you know, when you have a a film that has gratuitous violence, that means that that has some unnecessary violence. It didn't need to be there. And and what theologians have said is that the, the world we inhabit is gratuitous. In other words, it is unnecessary. It doesn't need to be. And the reason why they say that is because God himself is the only necessary being and God is infinite fullness and infinite love and infinite truth and beauty and being within God's own self. And do you know what that means? God doesn't need anything. God didn't create the world because God was lonely. Uh, God didn't have a human shaped vacuum in his heart that only we could fill. It was not that God was out there. No, God is infinitely full. He is overflowing with fullness and being and wholeness and love. And so God never created things in order to make up some lack or some deficiency in God's self. So then, why did God create all that is? Well, what theologians have said, what the Bible declares is that it was an act of God's own self-giving love. The the love that existed from all eternity past, that eternal community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who is fullness and love within God's self as an overflow, an overspilling of God's own being. He just said, uh, let's create the world, why not? And so do you know what that means about the things that you experience every day of your life? None of it is necessary. It was not necessary for you to have taste buds. It was not necessary for you to have eardrums that could reverberate sound within. It was not necessary for you to have a brain that could think. It was, Bach was not necessary. Mozart was not necessary. You 2 Coldplay, unnecessary. You know, delicious meals that perfectly cooked steak on the grill. Are you feeling it right now? Perfectly cooked. It's the perfect night for a steak on the grill. Unnecessary. Mother Moose salty chocolate ice cream. Totally unnecessary. All of it is gratuitous. That means that every good gift that you receive in life was unnecessary. And it came to you as a free gift from the gracious hand of God. There are no brute facts around you. There are no things that you had to have. And in a world that is so marked, our culture is so marked by entitlement, this vision of God creates a posture of deep humility and gratitude for all of the little things in our life. And surely, you know, a people that is giving thanks for all of the little little things will be a significantly happier person than somebody who doesn't give thanks. And that will certainly add to the unity of the church, right? Right? And so we could say that the the, the gratitude that Paul is calling for here is a gratitude for all of the little things. But you know, that's not what I want to focus on with you tonight. Uh, We could say that uh, the gratitude that he wants us to focus on is the grace that God has given to you and I in Jesus Christ. You know, that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That song was written by a former slave trader who ran ships back and forth across the Atlantic, stealing bodies and bringing them and putting them up for sale. And at some point in John Newton's life, he was confronted with his own dark depravity and the wretched sinfulness that brought him to this place. And there he also met the extraordinary grace and mercy and love of God that forgave him of all of his past. And out of this deep experience of God's grace, he penned those famous words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. And you know, when you are overcome with the grace of God, because you see that you do not deserve it, it creates a posture of deep gratitude. And of course, when a community of people together recognizes that, look, apart from the grace of God, there go I, that that apart from God, there there is a part of me that is wretch. Yes, I'm an image bearer. I, I've been made in the image of God. There's goodness there, but there's also brokenness. And I need a savior and a community of people that recognizes that they're broken, but that they're also deeply loved is a community of people that is marked by great humility and compassion and love for one another. And so certainly when you live out of a gratitude for the redemptive power and grace of God, yeah, yeah, that, that creates unity in the church, but that's not the gratitude that I want to focus on with you tonight. The gratitude that I want to focus with you tonight on that I think Paul is specifically alluding to here in Colossians chapter three, verse 15, is not simply a gratitude for all of the little things. And it's not even more profoundly a gratitude for God's saving work in Jesus Christ on your behalf, though it includes that. What Paul is talking about here, I think in this text, is a gratitude for the people around you. It is a deep gratitude for the people that God has brought in your life to walk with you in this journey of seeking to follow Jesus. Notice what it says back in verse 15. I want to kind of pull this verse apart. Look what it says. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts or let the peace of Christ rule among you as indeed you were called in one body. And just think about this phrase. He says, you were called into one body. You see, the Christian life begins with a call on your life. When you hear that call from Jesus to follow me, and some of you, I know you've been kind of investigating Christianity, you're exploring things. I want you to know Jesus is calling you to himself. He is saying, look, follow me, apprentice your life to me, learn how to live well for me. And this is always where the Christian life begins. And you see this all throughout the biographies of Jesus. Jesus approaches Peter and Andrew, and they're casting their nets in the sea. And Jesus says, follow me. And they leave their nets and they follow Jesus. And then Jesus goes up to, John and James, and he, and he puts the call on their life. He says, follow me. And they, they leave their father in their boat and they follow him. Then he walks up to Matthew at the, the tax booth and he calls him. He says, follow me. And Matthew leaves the tax booth and he follows Jesus. And so the, the call, the Christian life begins with the call of Jesus upon your life. But what I want you to see in this text is that Jesus, when he calls you to himself, he never calls you just to himself. He always calls you, he calls me to follow him as a part of a community with other believers who are following him. In other words, you are called not to follow Jesus as an individual. You are called to follow Jesus in community. And what a different, diverse, sometimes difficult community we have been invited to follow Jesus within, isn't it? Can I get a witness on that? You know, i reminded of that little poem. I've said it many times, to live above with saints we love, that would be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story. <laughs> you all know it's true. And of course, it was true for the original disciples. Do you realize, you know, you look at the original group, that just that group of 12 that was following Jesus, one of them was a zealot. A zealot was essentially a political revolutionary. This is somebody who was willing to take up arms in order to get what they wanted from the Roman government. This is the kind of person who would go down to a peaceful protest and would go down there and start breaking windows and throwing over cars and lighting fires. This was a zealot. And then on the other end of the political spectrum, there was a political compromiser, Matthew, who was a tax gatherer, who was in bed with the government. And he was earning his living off of, you know, uh, being a tax gatherer for Rome. Now, how do you think that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector initially got along? Do you think they had similar political views their first few weeks of following Jesus together? They probably didn't. And then, of course, there was Peter and James and John, and they were kind of good, conservative Jewish boys, you know, keeping their nose clean, working hard, down fishing, uh, learning Torah, you know, walking faithfully, trying to with God, you know, not trying to be on the political left or the political right, but really being a centrist. And yet Jesus brings all of them together to follow him. And it creates issues all the time. But I want you to see what Paul says in our text. He says, God has called you into one body. This word uh, body is an interesting metaphor. It's very common in the ancient world. Not a surprising metaphor at all. Because it referred to the fact that our bodies have many different parts, and yet the many parts make up the one body. Not all your parts have the same function. They all got different functions, right? but the different functions make up the one body. And in the ancient world, that was a metaphor for human communities. You've got different people and yet they collaborate, they work together to form one body. And Paul says, that is what you were invited into, a a diverse community that was called to serve together in unity. And notice the posture we should take toward this community, this diverse community full of people who don't look like you or talk like you or act like you or dress like you or vote like you. Jesus says, here is the posture you should take. Or Paul says here, here's the posture you should take. He says, be what? He says, be critical, right? He says, be a complainer. He says, be disappointed. Be disappointed when they don't meet your expectations and live up to what you think they should be doing with their time and with their life and, and uh, all of that. No, he doesn't say be critical. He doesn't say be complaining. He doesn't say be disappointed. Instead, he says about our interaction with, our, with the one body, he says, and be thankful he says, be thankful. You've been called into this body. Be thankful for the people around you. And I want you just to pause for a moment and just think about the body that Christ has called you into. I mean, I was thinking about you all this week. And I just want to say to you very directly, I am so grateful for you, Christchurch. I am so thankful that I have the privilege and honor to serve as a pastor within this community. I am so thankful for the many, many ways you have reached out to me with love and with grace and with compassion and, and people have, have cared for us and prayed for us and loved us so well. I am so thankful for you all. And of course, Paul tells us here, he says, look, that, be, be thankful for the body that you've been called in. But here's the rub, right? Right? Here's the rub on this command. And the Doors sang it well so many years ago. Remember the band, The Doors? Remember that song, People Are Strange? People are strange when they're a stranger. Can we sing it together? Yes. But people are strange, right? And people get weird and they bother you and they're difficult to be around. Am I the only one that I find people that way sometimes? But he doesn't say, Don't, he doesn't say, be critical or be complaining or disappointed in all of the strange, difficult people. He says that the peace, the unity, and the harmony of your church depends upon a posture of gratitude. And of course, you know this is true, it's true in your marriage. If you are critical and you burden a husband or wife down with the unbearable weight of your continual unmet expectations, it will sabotage the unity in your home. You know, it's happened, you know, Alicia and I have gotten in arguments and fights. I mean, I'm a pastor, so it's only happened maybe once. And even then it was just a little thing, you know. No, but we've gotten in fights and arguments. And you know, in the heat of the moment, what do I wanna do in an argument? I don't know if you find this dynamic in your life, but I find it really easy to exaggerate the flaws of Alicia and to minimize my own. Does anybody else know anything of that dynamic? But of course, what happens when you withdraw from that and instead you actually start to remember and call to mind the beauty and the goodness and the strength and the incredible gift that this other human being is, all of a sudden, all of those exaggerated, hyperbolic, critical you know, vision that you have of them starts to dissipate before your very eyes. And so it's true in marriage, and it's true in your relationship, of course, with your parents. You know, Oftentimes, when you're just a small child, you have a very high view of your parents. Sometimes in your teenage years, you don't think much about parents. But then you, you come to a point in your 20s maybe when you're in the middle of a therapy session and you all of a sudden start becoming really, really critical of your parents and they did no wrong. And some of you have experienced this from your 20-year-old children and some of you are 20 right now and you've thought this about your parents and uh, that's why you're in therapy is because your parents screwed you up. But, um, but, but, But listen... If, you are, if the primary posture you take toward your parents or toward your spouse is a posture of criticism and complaint and disappointment, it is going to sabotage the unity and the harmony in your home. And of course, it's true in the church. If your posture is critical and you continually express your disappointment and you're complaining and you're getting together in little groups and you're complaining with people, it's going to create divisions within the church. Now, this can be incredibly difficult. This can be an incredibly challenging word uh, if you are an idealist, because I am an idealist. And so as an idealist, my primary mode when I walk around places is to see what's not rather than to see what is there. I had this season in my life where uh, uh, Alicia and I and the girls, we were on sabbatical And I was writing a dissertation on worship in local churches. And so as part of uh, my research, I was visiting, you know, a dozen churches. And I found myself that the primary posture when I walked into a church was the posture of the critic. And I thought the music was too low, or it was too loud, or it was too lame, or uh, the preaching was too dull, or the pastor was too boring, or uh, he was not theological enough, or he was too theolo- theological, he was not practical enough, and the church wasn't diverse enough, it wasn't generationally diverse, it wasn't ethically diverse, it wasn't socioeconomically diverse, they weren't doing it enough for the poor, they weren't... And, and I primarily could approach the church as a critic. I wonder if I'm alone in that posture... Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for criticism. There is a place for feeling disappointed. But here's the thing. If your criticisms and your disappointments outweigh your posture of gratitude toward the local church, you will destroy the church. And it's true when a spouse or parents or a church family experiences your gratitude for who they are, And when when they experience that that's greater for for you than all of the complaints they have about who you are not, that actually creates this great sense of unity and wholeness and well-being in the home. You know, in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer talks a lot about this. So one of my favorite books on Christian community is this book. In fact, it's, it's not one of my, it is my favorite book on Christian community. It's by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor of an underground church movement in Nazi Germany. And uh, Bonhoeffer, I put it like this. He, he talks about somebody who goes into a church with a visionary ideal of community. In other words, you walk into a church like I do oftentimes with an ideal that the church, it needs to be ethnically diverse and socioeconomically diverse. And it needs to be generationally diverse. And it needs to be actively involved in justice and in, in, in mercy works. And it needs to be evangelizing. And it always needs to handle conflict only with compassion and love and mutual understanding. And there are no difficult people in that ideal church. Would it be nice, wouldn't it? Have to die and go to heaven to get there. But Bonhoeffer says this. This is so profound, and I read this years ago, and I come back to it about every year. I read it to you all about every year, and I'll continue to do it because it's that important. But he says this: the one who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by oneself one enters the community of Christians with their demands and they set up their own law and they judge the brethren and God himself accordingly. In other words, you walk into a Christian church and you start judging everybody around you by what you think should be the standard and the ideal. And then he says this, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. In other words, if you love and you are more committed to your ideal vision of what the church should be, you're more committed to that than the flesh and blood, difficult, broken sinners around you. If you love your ideal more than the real people around you, then you will end up destroying the church. And then he says this, how can God entrust great things to one who will not thankfully receive from him little things? If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith and difficulty... If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty and so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and the riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, the more thankfully we receive daily what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases In other words, the key to growing into the kind of community that God has us to be is to actually take space and time daily and give God thanks for the Christian community. And so let me just close with this. You know, Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter four, verse two, he commands us in this way. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And I want to suggest that Paul here is commanding a regular habitual practice to all of us. And it is the practice of stilling our hearts, disconnecting from all of the voices around us, turning off the news, praise God, turn off the news and sitting quiet before the presence of God and still your soul. And give him thanks for all of his goodness and all of his grace and the way in which that goodness is manifest to you through very specific people who he has brought in your life. And while you're at it, don't just thank God for those really nice, sweet, wonderful people. Thank God for those those thorns in your side that have actually been a cause for your own growth and sanctification, He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, giving thanks to God. Keep practicing gratitude until gratitude becomes a habit of your mind. You know, a book came out not a while back called Deep Work. And the author describes deep work work as the ability to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. And I wanna suggest that this practice of giving thanks is a cognitively demanding task because for most of us, our impulse inside is to get frustrated and upset and anxious by the people around us rather than to erupt in gratitude for them. So it takes discipline. And what he says here is that what's called for is for us to actually disconnect from all of kind of the technology and the devices voices, devices around us and actually pause and to take space in order to develop a posture of what he called deep work. But I think the same thing is true when it comes to prayer and to gratitude. We need to disconnect and create that posture of sitting before God And repenting of our posture of self-justification and blame and criticism. Taking space where we take the logs out of our own eye, we stop agonizing about the speck in our neighbor's eye and we actually see them for the gift that they are and give God thanks for them. This is what God is inviting us into. So probably about a decade ago, I was in a a small group with some other pastors and we had a mentor pastor who was leading the group, uh, a really wonderful, fantastic pastor named Dick Kaufman. And his whole goal uh, for us pastors was to help us live more deeply out of the gospel of God's grace. And as part of our discussion, he would always ask these two questions. And the first question was, where is it in your life where you are personally seeing your need for grace? Where do you see your own need for God's grace in your life? And the second question that he asked was, where do you see God's grace at work in your life? And I just want to invite you just to pause before the face of God right now. Let's just kind of close our eyes, posture our hearts before God. And I just want you to recognize right now where you see your own need for God's grace as it relates to being a critic or a complainer or someone who's constantly disappointed and heaping your unmet expectations on other people all the time. You know, just pause before God's, God's face and just confess your need for his grace in your life. And now I just want you just to pause and after you've allowed that to do that, do God's work in your life, just pause and recognize where God's grace has been manifest to you in the names and faces of people who he's brought in your life. And then as we sing this, this final song, just use the words of this song. Maybe you, you can just let the, the band sing over you if you just want to use it as a space for meditation. But Or if you just want to allow your words to speak forth uh, words of praise, but use this as a space to express great gratitude and thanks to God for his many gifts that he's given us, not least of which, which is the people around us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that even now, as we pause before your face, that you would do work in us by your spirit, even now that you would expose us, that you would lead us to repentance and that you would lead us more and more into a posture of great gratitude for the people that you've brought around us. And I pray, oh God, that you would cultivate in us as a community, the habit of gratitude. And would it become so real and so constant in our life together, that it would be a true habit of our minds, that it would become our default mode, that we would just be so grateful to you for all that you've given to us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who has given everything for us and to whom we owe our deepest thanks and gratitude and praise. Amen.